Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America, created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw, your host for this season of the podcast. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode where we're going to discuss two important topics. One is the delivery of heart failure care in rural areas in this country. And we will have a new featured segment, an update from the HFSA Heart Failure Research Network. To get us started, we're going to be talking about, like I said, the delivery of rural care for heart failure patients in this country. And as many of you may know, living in a rural area has been associated with poorer health and, of course, access to health care. There's lots of reasons for why this may happen. This includes decreased provider supply, longer distance to travel to healthcare centers, lower density of providers, amongst others. When we talk about heart failure specifically, there is not a lot of robust data in this area. So we decided that we wanted to specifically talk to people from both sides of the country that are working in this space regularly. So we have three guests today to help unpack some of these issues. We have Katie Bates, who's a nurse practitioner specializing in heart failure in North Central Washington State at Confluence Health. She has a special interest in chronic disease management and literacy and heart failure. Katie works side by side with our second guest, Dr. Gautam Nayak cardiologist who's been managing heart failure patients at Confluence Health since 2009. He has an interest in the intersection of chronic disease and heart failure, as well as optimizing care delivery models in rural America. The two of them have been working closely together to develop a robust specialty telemedicine and virtual care program for patients in the Washington area. And from the other side of the country, we have Dr. George Sokos. He's the Director of Advanced Heart Failure at West Virginia University Heart Failure and Vascular Institute. His research focuses on the metabolic abnormalities of heart failure, insulin resistance and dilated cardiomyopathy, antibody-mediated rejection, and more. He's done a lot of work in this area, and I do thank you all for joining today. Appreciate your time. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Of course. Let's start with Gotham. When we talk about patients that you're taking care of day-to-day, that have established heart failure, what would you say are some of the greatest barriers for them getting the care that you would like to provide them? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. This is a great opportunity. I appreciate being on. You know, for us in North Central Washington, we have about a quarter to a third of the state that we cover all the way up to the Canadian border and kind of down towards South Central Washington. And the geography is a huge barrier. I think just the ability for patients to get in with us for a visit in person is often a big challenge. And then coordinating care geographically with 11 different critical access hospitals in our region and the different primary care settings that occur as a result of the geography have been very challenging. And to give you an example, all 10 of those hospitals have a different electronic medical record. So it's really, really challenging to orchestrate care. And then there are clinics, some are connected with our organization, but most are through either private practice or community health centers. And so just getting that care coordination is also probably the the second biggest challenge. So I'd say geography and then and then the care coordination are, are our biggest challenges. Sure. And then Katie, do you want to add to that in terms of from your perspective, what are some of the biggest barriers to help your patients? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I think following on what Gotham said, because of the geography, some of our patients 
if they want to come and see us in clinic in our central location, which is in Wenatchee, where our hospital and clinic is, they're looking at about a 100 to 150 mile one-way drive to our clinic. And a lot of our patients in that area up north either don't have access to reliable transportation, they don't have their own vehicle, and they rely on someone else to take them to their appointments, which requires essentially an entire day off of work in order to travel because you're in the car about four to five hours. You know, there's a limited amount of nursing and medical assistance support in the rural area as well. And so we do have an outreach clinic that's staffed with one of our own cardiology nurses, but we've always struggled to keep that clinic staffed and keep a medical assistant up there for a variety of reasons, because there just isn't a large pool of people to draw from to have good nursing and MA support. And we really do rely on them to help us coordinate care. So we really have to have strong support team in our outreach areas. And I think we work in partnership or we want to work in partnership with primary care. And that's also a a challenge in these areas, a lack of strong primary care. Gotham mentioned, you know, the variety of different organizations that provide primary care is, is one barrier, but also there's a fair amount of turnover with PCPs. So just kind of getting to know who they are, coordinate with them, because we do rely on them to kind of provide some continuity of care for us when we can't see patients. So I think that those are some of the additional barriers that we face. I think those are really common issues for heart failure patients, really for all patients, unfortunately. George, when we talk about sort of delivery of heart failure care in West Virginia, what are some of the challenges that your team has faced over the years? So I would uh, absolutely say we face very similar challenges to Gotham and to Katie. The transportation is a huge issue. We have patients travel about four and a half hours. So West Virginia is a very long state. From where we are in the most northern part of the state to the most southern tip, which borders Virginia, is about four hours. They just closed a hospital in the most southern part of the state. So that limits the access to any kind of care in that area, which is really difficult, even just for patients to get labs. You know, they can get them at their primary care office sometimes, not always. So that that is an absolute barrier to delivery of care. And then there are several counties in our state that don't even have a hospital in the county. And so sometimes it's even an hour to get to the closest hospital for them, even a critical access hospital. So it's can be very, very difficult. And of course, those areas are the most impoverished areas of the state. And even more so now with, we were very heavy on coal mining for a lot of our jobs in the state. And, you know, now that's, a lot of that's gone. And so unemployment's extreme, can be as high as 20% in some of those counties. Medicaid population is extremely high in those counties. And while we do have, you know, Medicaid will pay for transportation, you're at the mercy of finding someone to actually provide that transportation that's paid for by the state. So it's it's very difficult. And then on top of that, which I'm sure that Katie and Gotham have the same issues as well as uh, broadband access, very limited broadband access in those areas. We have several patients that will drive to you know, large gas ch- station chain here, Sheets. I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure how nationwide Sheets is, but they'll drive to that station just to get free Wi-Fi so that they can have, uh, you know, video visits with us. And so it's, it's difficult. Basic heart failure care is difficult. And if you throw in advanced care, like an LVAD or even some of our transplant patients, 
or even look at remote monitoring, right? We, we, I think we take for granted the ability for people to transmit CardioMEMS data to us or Optival or CoreView or you know, dealer's choice, right? Whatever, whatever kind of device, we can't get that. And some of these places don't even have cell coverage. So no broadband, no cell, and basically they're at the mercy of the landline. Things as simple as just our pharmacists and our, we know we're lucky enough in our clinic as I think a lot of advanced heart failure clinics are to have a pharmacist in our clinic, but just to call them to go over their meds and changes in their meds and review labs and so sort of thing sometimes can be a challenge. Yeah, and I think we've had a lot of similar issues in Salt Lake City, Utah, because it's, it's a medium-sized city, but there's a lot of patients that travel from quite far. And, you know, I moved here from Los Angeles a couple of years ago where the biggest issue is just being stuck in traffic. I didn't realize until I got here that some of our patients would try to drive four or five, six hours just for a follow-up visit. And you add the weather and the seasons and whatnot, and it becomes a giant barrier to just see a provider to actually get just routine follow-up, forget about if they're actually not doing well. One thing everyone hit on is this issue of telehealth. And obviously last year and this year, everything that happened with the COVID-19 pandemic, everyone's been sort of asked to adapt a little bit more, both patients and providers, to at least offer some form of telehealth to help our patients, particularly the ones that live far away. And Katie, from your team's perspective, how has telehealth gone and what's been going well and what needs to get better when we talk about remote care for these patients? Well, in our particular organization, we have been doing telemedicine for about four or five years. And our telemedicine program is actually started by Dr. Nayak, who's on this call, but we do it a little bit differently. We have a primary care clinic up north about 100 miles away, and the patients will go to that clinic. Our cardiology nurse will you know, room them like a typical visit, and then we'll have a video conference with that patient. We have done that for about four or five years, and that's gone really well. And we've, we've learned a lot of great things about who's appropriate for those types of visits and how to kind of triage those. And so I think our transition into providing almost 100% telemedicine in the peak of the pandemic went reasonably well because we had that experience going into it. We had never done strict video and phone visits from a patient's home. And so we had to transition into doing that and kind of work out some of those kinks, which was mostly related to technology and the various platforms that we were being asked to use. But I think the pandemic itself, just having to shift everyone to virtual care for a period of time, really did kind of highlight some of those social disparities. As Dr. Sokos mentioned, when patients don't have access to broadband or a connected device, there's no role for telehealth there because they can't access it. And so there were a few patients that I think you know, we would have preferred to do video visits, or I think the organization preferred us to do video visits. But really, when a patient has a landline and not even a really reliable one at that, you know, trying to conduct some of these visits with these very complex patients over the phone or even trying to get them near a phone was really challenging. So I think it highlighted some of those disparities a little more, but it made us think a little bit more deeply about how do we coordinate care for these patients who arguably probably need access to this the most. And so I think it really just kind of fueled that wanting to innovate in that area a little bit more for us and try to find some more unique ways to connect with these people. 
Gautam, do you want to, any other thoughts on the issue of what changed in the last couple of years, basically, and how did you guys have to adapt with everything that happened? I mean, I think Katie hit the nail on the head as far as just the ability to access the technology. It's interesting here in North Central Washington, we're right along the Columbia River, and there's a series of dams. And so the broadband is actually quite good. The problem is, is that our patients can't afford it or don't have a device to actually connect in. And so it doesn't really help us too much to have that without our patient's ability to access it. And so once the pandemic hit, we were able to transition, but kind of like what George's experience was, we would tell them to drive to our clinic parking lot and just park there and do the video visit from there because they could catch the Wi-Fi from the clinic there. But we really had a lot of difficulty with video visits. I think Katie was being pretty generous. I mean, I would say, and she probably would agree that at least, you know, 80% of our visits, pure telephone, because patients couldn't get access to video. And most of them, thankfully, had access to a landline somewhere. But many live off the grid, and and that was even a, a challenge for them. So the pandemic, I think, changed a lot of how we view telehealth around the country, But I like to just tell people that it's really not about the technology. It's about what's appropriate for whom and when. And I think we learned quite a bit of that leading into the pandemic. And then that just got accentuated when we all, all we had was virtual for a while. And so we, I think like everybody else, learned quite a bit. And I will say it's nice to hear from George in terms of like some of the pain points that he has. And it's just, I think Katie and I feel like we're a little bit on an island and hearing that other people are going through this is, it's disappointing, but it's also, we don't feel so like we're struggling so much. I think it's interesting. Yeah, George, for your team, how is the telehealth experience? And what are you seeing now too, particularly as everything starts to open up again? Are you seeing patients still wanting to do these virtual visits? Or do you see a lot of kind of more old school? I, I just want to come in and, and see my see my team members. I think there's a healthy mix honestly, that. There's some folks who really want to get back to see us and whether they actually need to or not, we've tried to explain to them that, you know, we can do a lot of these visits virtually and be okay. I think kind of like what Gotham said is that we learned a ton about who we can handle virtually and who we have to really bring in. And the difficult part, you know, really during the pandemic was how do you convince someone to come in and they don't want to and everybody's you know, I think we did an extremely poor job in the medical community of getting the message out that it's still okay to come in when you're sick. I mean, we did a horrible job. And I think not just here, everywhere, you know, appropriately, we want people to be, have a healthy respect for COVID, but also I can't tell you how many people, I'm sure you all saw the same thing. And when they finally did get here, I mean, they were ready to die, you know, I mean, then we couldn't even offer any advanced therapies. And That was very troubling to me, but I think on the positive aspect of that, we did learn a lot about how to do this. You know, we have several clinics spaced throughout the state where we do virtual visits, where we usually have a nurse there and a nurse practitioner that's on site. They're not heart failure nurse practitioners. They're most of them are at least cardiology nurse practitioners where we'll do it like a joint visit, but a lot of those places don't even have that. And we're, so we're just trying to reach more of those sites and we have a pretty large primary care network throughout the state that's you know rural medicine based. We actually were able to reach out to a lot of those folks through our CTSI here, where we do a lot of our research with those 
centers and we were able to get a sense from our primary care network of how they feel about heart failure care. And that's something that we actually presented at the HFSA last year. So what we found, it really didn't matter how close they were to a hospital. I was under the impression that people who were close to a hospital, their care would somehow be better. You know, if they're in a rural area with a hospital nearby, that they would feel more comfortable with what's going on. What I found out was didn't matter that the majority of our rural internist family medicine docs were still making changes in their medications, felt like they were going to be the primary person to do all that. We like over 75% of the, those folks who answered our survey felt that they were the ones that were going to have to make all the adjustments to medications and not the cardiologist. And that was eye-opening to me. I was not expecting that. And it was the same everywhere. So changed my outlook on how I was handling folks from that area and made me realize that I had to have a lot closer connection with those primary care physicians to be able to make an impact. And to the point where we actually started a, a monthly CME, just about heart failure through our core network. So just basically like a one hour, I don't know if you ever heard of ECHO. It's a rural um, and really kind of based primary care education platform. Um, so we use that for heart failure uh, education. We got some folks from around the country really to join in on that. So we're looking on better ways to do that, but it was, it's, you know, I'm trying to take in what the feedback for what we get to help make that work out a little bit better. I'm sure you guys have similar findings in, in Utah and Washington state and anywhere else for that matter. I'm glad you brought that up. And just for those listening, we will include the references that come up in our discussion here. So we'll make sure that's there for anyone to look at. But I agree, it, it sort of spoke to this idea of how much heart failure care really is care by everyone involved, right? You, you cannot ignore the internist, you cannot ignore the general cardiologist, partly because there's so much disease to go around, unfortunately, but partly because there's only so much one person or one team can do, right? When we're talking about medication up titration, lab monitoring, and then particularly some of these patients that need advanced therapies, you kind of need to rely upon everyone to help you help these patients. Gautam, what are your thoughts on this? Just from what you guys do, how much sort of hand-to-hand work do you end up having to do with general medicine, general cardiology to help take care of the folks? That's a great point. Great question. I think for us, it's partly geography, which we've already talked about, just given the reach of our community. But it's partly also access just because there just aren't enough of us, whether it's a nurse practitioner like Katie or a PA or one of the cardiologists, we actually don't have any heart failure boarded cardiologists here. And so we're all kind of expected to really dive into that. A couple of us are, I think, a little bit more interested in it. But, you know, I think that the reality for us is that we have to partner with primary care in some way. And even that becomes tricky. Like I mentioned, it's just hard to sometimes get information from other systems, or it's even hard for patients to kind of get access with their primary care provider in their region as well. One of the ways that Katie and I have tried to get around it a little bit is creating more virtual models that are allow us more touch points between clinic visits. So we developed something called an asynchronous visit, which is well-described in a lot of other specialties. But what it is, is just leveraging the electronic medical record patient portal to send a patient a questionnaire on a regular basis after they leave the office. 
And it sounds simple, but it took us quite a bit of time to figure out the right questions to ask a heart failure patient and then how to ask it. Thankfully, Katie's area of research interest has been on patient literacy. And so she was really able to dive in and and make those questions answerable to any of our patients, regardless of education level. And so we started doing that a little over a year ago, and that has been a very successful way for us to get information back from the patients between clinic visits if they have access to the patient portal. And probably about 40 to 50% of our patients do, which was good. So that was helpful, more of them since the pandemic started. So that's been super helpful because I think the questions are framed in a way that patients can answer and we get the information we need between visits. But partnering with primary care is honestly huge for probably our entire country for heart failure patients, but definitely in in more rural areas, it's critical. For advanced therapies, with your guys' team, Gotham, how does that work when patients have either heart transplants or durable LVADs? How is the care sort of shared or delivered? Yeah, so we primarily partner with the University of Washington, which is our biggest transplant center. And that has been an ongoing collaboration with them. We really haven't had too many bad patients in our region. We had one that was here for a number of years, and then he ended up moving over closer to the University of Washington for other reasons. We have a second one that I think just got her VAD a few weeks ago, and a number of transplant patients that we will see on occasion, but mostly go over to the University of Washington. And I think that's just been a personal preference. But what we're recognizing is that we really do need to partner more rigorously with with the academic centers. Uh, I'm sure George has had a lot of outreach experience. And I think for a lot of us non-heart failure cardiologists who want to get into the heart failure space, I think this is actually kind of exciting for us, even though we don't have the fellowship training to be able to try and learn something new. And so I, I am really excited about the opportunities that if you know the university wants to, to pose them, I, I think it's a challenge. You guys have a very unique and special skill set. And it's hard to translate that for somebody like me, kind of taking care of everything. But it'd be a pretty uh, exciting opportunity for sure. We've got a great relationship with them. And as you know, I think most of these patients aren't going to get a transplant and they're probably not going to get a VAD. And so that has been an amazing collaboration with them. I think I've just learned so much from our heart failure colleagues over there. And it's allowed us to do things like develop an amyloid program here, a small one, and be more comfortable with prescribing SGLT2s and GLP1s as cardiologists. And so I think that that collaboration has been so impactful with like big universities like the University of Washington, where I think it'll really get interesting is when we do start to see more VAD patients that are out, you know, durable VAD patients, which, you know, I can already kind of tell there's a little bit of angst just with the one in our valley right now. Like, what if they come to the emergency room? What's going to happen? And so we do have folks like Katie that are kind of actively involved in the heart failure program to maybe help train some of the nurses and things like that. That's going to be really interesting. But I will say that the University of Washington and, and, and a lot of the heart failure cardiologists around our state have been pretty amazing to work with, even just for what they probably consider more routine, but patients that are on that trajectory to kind of have you know, worse outcomes. You guys touched on something that I think is important for any subspecialty care, heart failure included, right? A lot, the, it's sort of a very small percentage of patients that may 
be candidates for and actually derive a lot of benefit from something like a heart transplant or an LVAD. And the way the world is and the way things are, those patients are going to be shifted and nudged towards less rural areas, right? More urban areas where a lot of the transplant centers ultimately are. And we see the same thing here where a lot of our patients come from very far away and we do everything we can to help them. But from their perspective, ultimately what most of them want is to have that high quality of life back near home, right? And a lot of times asking them to relocate to some of these cities that they really did not have an interest in living in can be one of the biggest asks when you're trying to ask a patient or a patient and their family to say, okay, we need you to move here so we can help you with a, with, to get an LVAD or to get a transplant. And it really is a big ask because it's almost never that one person, right? It's usually the person in a caregiver or a person in their family. George, I'm sure you've seen this all the time since you guys have started things up. That this idea of kind of the sub-subspecialty care, I feel like it just draws you towards the urban areas, whether you want to be or not, at least for the short term. What are your thoughts on that? So most of our listeners probably don't know much about West Virginia, but you know, we're a state of 1.8 million. And so, you know, the largest city, quote unquote, in West Virginia is about 40 to 50,000 people. So yeah, so I don't know if we really have anything that qualifies as urban, but probably Morgantown is it where the university is. That's where we're located. You know, we're about an hour from Pittsburgh where we are. I got to say, it never really occurred to me to ask someone to move here because I know it's not going to happen. And that's like one of the things that the people tell us that, hey, doc, if I can't get home, I don't want to live. That's pretty powerful, to be quite honest with you. I'm sure everybody's heard that before, something to that degree, but it's an issue. It's the way things are, at least now. I do want to wrap up soon. I do appreciate all of your guys' time talking about this. And, and I'll just mention that we're planning on one of our next upcoming episodes is going to be contrasting a lot of this stuff with, with urban environments, right? And what happens, what happens to the heart failure patients who are in Manhattan? What happens to the heart failure patients that are in Boston and Los Angeles? And I think there's going to be very different, but in a lot of ways, similar challenges that patients out there are facing too. I do want to end on at least some notes of optimism. And Katie, maybe I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Just based on the last few years and then based on your experience with taking care of your patients, what are you optimistic about when it comes to helping patients with heart failure in these communities moving forward? Well, that's a great question. I do have optimism about it, just seeing how we've gotten through the last year, the last couple of years. I think that a lot of the challenges that we have faced over the last few years in the pandemic and also just in general heart failure care with these rural patients, it really drives us to innovate. It drives us to think of unique ways to connect with our patients. And it drives us to collaborate with those around us. And so I think that will only benefit others, even if you don't work in a rural area. Part of my role has been collaborating or connecting with some of the other services in our rural areas like home health, the skilled nursing facilities. You know, I think that it's really helpful to make those connections because we're all part of this team taking care of these patients. And if everyone feels like they have that two-way communication about patients, that we're all on the same page, we're working together. So I think the collaboration is key. One example that we didn't touch on was some of the services that aren't available to our patients, our heart failure patients, specifically in these rural areas, like 
cardiac rehab is a big one. And over the last couple of years, we have struggled trying to get a rehab program started in our rural north central area, but we really have pushed forward with it over the last couple of years and and finally have a program starting this summer. And that's going to be a huge benefit to our patients up north, which we know has established benefits for their mortality, morbidity. So, and that has come out of just us knowing our patients and knowing what they need and driving that collaboration with these other hospitals that can help run these programs and with people that can help support them where they are. That's great. That's fantastic to hear. Gautam, any any last thoughts on kind of moving forward? What do you what do you feel good about the next steps for these patients? I'd echo really everything that Katie said and then maybe throw in, you know, a little bit more about the team-based care approach. It just feels like there's just an increasing recognition that heart failure patients really need that team approach. And I think that's invigorating for all of us. You know, it's a, it's been a hard year. And so to be able to have a team and understand that the best way to take care of these patients is through a team approach, I feel really optimistic about. And I think there's just increasing recognition that these patients, you know, they're not monolithic. There's not just a specific disease state heart failure. It really is a disease of, of many diseases and, and chronic disease management plays a key role. And so I think recognizing that whatever type of heart failure they may have, I feel really optimistic that we're just understanding the disease state with a lot more clarity. And that's actually kind of exciting just given how many advances we've had, but also understanding how little we actually know and how much there is to learn. That's great. George, any last thoughts? I agree with all this. I'm very optimistic. I think, you know, just you asking us to have a podcast to talk about care of the rural heart failure patient to me is an acknowledgement by the society that this is an issue that we all have to share and discuss. And I think this is a huge opportunity to collaborate with other rural centers. So I'm hopeful that out of this podcast, you know, we can develop, you know, a collaborative effort with, you know, multiple centers and, you know, really get some good, hopefully get some good research out of this and to help us understand what really is going to work best from now and looking forward and looking at different technologies that we could be able to use together. I, I, I am very encouraged by that. And I think there's a lot of cool things that are coming down the pike. And I, I, I would just say to Katie, we just implemented a tele-cardiac rehab program here. And we're looking at some things with that. So love to hear what you guys are doing, but we could really share what we're looking forward to doing um, as well. Now that that's getting paid for. So cool stuff. I, I'm very excited. That's wonderful. So I want to thank you all for your time. Gautam, George, Katie, appreciate you guys joining us today. It was really fun chatting. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for joining today. Before we wrap up, I do want to turn it over to Laura Poco, our HFSA staff liaison to the podcast. She has a new featured segment. Laura, I'll throw it to you. Hi, everybody. This is Laura Poco with the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm here to introduce a new segment to the show. Once a quarter, we will be inviting a member of the HFSA Heart Failure Research Network to the show to give us an update on clinical research being conducted through the network. Today, we have with us Dr. Chris O'Connor, who is the Chief Executive of the Inova Heart and Vascular Institute in Virginia. He's actively involved in the Heart Failure Research Network. Dr. O'Connor, it's great to have you with us today for an update on the the Heart Failure Research Network, or HFRN, 
as we call it. And for those in our audience who don't know about the HFRN, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, Laura, first, thank you for having and emphasizing heart failure research and the heart failure research network on the podcast. This is an exciting opportunity really to communicate to all of our colleagues and friends about the exciting work that the HFSA has endorsed and has has asked me to participate in. Heart failure research is really struggling, I think, in the United States. If you look at what's happened in global clinical trials, less and less patients from the United States and North America are being enrolled in large-scale clinical trials, particularly in the pharma sector. And as we see all these great developments of new therapies that are being afforded to our patients, one of the questions that comes up is how applicable is it to the citizens of the United States and North America if we don't have very good participation of patients in those trials? And this is different when you look at other disease states like structural heart disease or acute coronary syndromes. We see better participation in the North America and the United States than in heart failure. So why is that? Well, there's enormous pressures on heart failure clinicians today for their time. There's much pressure for them to justify their time clinically, to justify their time And there hasn't been the support, the infrastructure support for heart failure clinicians to set up the research apparatus to conduct site-based research like we had in previous years when I was coming up as a junior faculty member. So the Heart Failure Research Network was really set up to foster and uh, help engage the broader community in North America to conduct high-value clinical research that is really high-quality, efficient clinical research as site-based investigators, such that by forming this collective organization, this consortium, so to speak, we can be proud of our participation because our patients deserve that. So it sounds like a a great way for sites to get engaged in important heart failure trials and get the support and visibility for everyone on the research team. Is that right? That's correct. And we've just started to launch this effort right now. There's 160 members who have raised their hand and said, we want to be in the heart failure research network. And we're very open and encouraging for more people to join. That's over 100 institutions through 30 states throughout the country. So it's growing. There's enthusiasm. And we would welcome the participation of more individuals to ask and see whether there's an opportunity here. And who can join the HFRN? We really are encouraging anyone who is uh, interested in the field of heart failure research to explore the opportunity to join. Obviously, we we want individuals to think about the broader membership of HFSA when they inquire about the Heart Failure Research Network, as this is a, a subsidized activity of HFSA. But why would somebody want to join is a more important question. And and there's several reasons. One is that we are attempting to provide infrastructure support for individuals who may be starting out in a practice, trying to set up site-based research. 
share best practices with some of the most experienced investigators in the country. We're trying to allow centralization, facilitate centralization of contracting, of IRB activities, really provide feedback around site activation. What are the best practices to get the site up activated quickly? What are the best practices for enrolling patients, identifying patients and enrolling patients? And one specific theme that we want to tackle is encouraging the enrollment of special populations, underrepresented minorities, elderly population, women, Black patients, Hispanic patients that have been underrepresented in heart failure clinical trials. And that's going to be one of our targeted goals. Wow. So it sounds like there's a lot going on with the HFRN. Continuing on with what you were just saying, what else is going on? What are, what's the latest news in the HFRN? Early on, we conducted a pilot study with the Victoria Merck study, just with a small set of sites to see what central facilitation would look like. And when we say central facilitation, we mean that there we would put resources to help the sites if they're having problems with infrastructure, identifying study coordinators, how to do site activation, how to use central contracting, how to optimize the contract. We've seen investigators who've been relatively naive in the contracting process really lose a lot of dollars because they didn't know how to optimize a contract, optimizing the regulatory oversight through the IRD. And by sharing the best practices and having a facilitated monitoring of the progress through the trial, we think we can provide for our patients a better experience in the clinical trial and for the sponsors, better value that is higher quality with greater efficiency. And so I think at a lower cost. And so I think there is real opportunity for investigators to raise their hand and say, I want to be involved. Now, right now we're in a partnership with the National Heart Lung Blood Institute on a trial that is known as the LOFT trial. And this is a trial that is really looking at nocturnal oxygen in patients with heart failure and sleep disorder breathing. Bill Abraham from Ohio State is the principal investigator. And we've worked with the team to conduct a survey of interest and feasibility. And we've identified over 10 sites that are now in the process of being activated. And so this is one of our first formal initiatives where we're involved at the beginning of a trial. And now we've had you know, close to half a dozen sponsors reaching out to us saying, listen, we, we want to know more about the Heart Failure Research Network and whether we could partner with you in our therapeutic developments, both in the device world and in the new pharma world. Thank you again, Dr. O'Connor. It was a great overview. And to all of our listeners, you heard it here. The HFRN is open to new members and you can find more information about it on the HFSA website under the research tab up in the menu. And with that, I will turn it back to you, Kevin. Once again, I want to thank you all for joining us today, joining our team for talking about heart failure care in the rural community. Also for Dr. Chris O'Connor for providing us that update on the reach on the HFSA research network. For more information on advances, late breaking news in the field of heart failure care, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, find it HFSA on Twitter 
or visit hfsa.org slash heartfailurebeat to learn all about the podcast created by the society. To the listeners, thanks for joining us. And to our guests, thanks for joining today.